Thanks for pressing play. Today, we continue our focus on the current situation in the world and in the United States, because in times of great change and great uncertainty, we turn to great, in some cases, counterintuitive minds. Today, our guest is super smart, super successful, and super controversial. He is Rain Man David Sachs, and he is back. He's a legendary entrepreneur, category and company builder, and now venture capitalist. He's the founder of Craft Ventures, and in Silicon Valley, David is a living legend. You see, he was the co-founding COO of PayPal, founder and CEO of Yammer, which sold to Microsoft for over a billion dollars, and he has been an early investor and advisor to companies like Facebook, Twitter, Uber, SpaceX, Airbnb, Bird Scooters, Slack, and many more. He's also become a pretty well-known of late. You see, he's a co-host of a podcast called All In, which has become one of the most popular dialogue podcasts in the world with him and his uh, quote-unquote besties. If you haven't heard the All In podcast, you should check it out. And my guess is you're probably listening to it already. On this episode, pay special attention to David's thoughts on what the traditional media is getting wrong about Russia why the Biden administration should be doing more to promote peace, why there is a coming GOP red wave in the U.S. midterms, and who he's backing to be the next California governor. And I'll give you a hint. It's not Gavin Newsom. And David talks about why startup valuations are coming down and what startups should be doing now to be successful, the future of venture capital, and how to deal with all of this uncertainty and a lot more. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine calls us, quote, the best business podcast. And some reviewers call us, quote, asinine and overrated. (laughs) I always love those negative reviews. Whatever you call us, we are the Business Dialogue Podcast for people who believe in free speech and crave unfiltered, unfettered, unedited, real dialogues with the people making our world a different place. Now, readers like you have made Category Pirate's latest book a number one bestseller on Amazon.com. The Category Design Toolkit Beyond Marketing, 15 Frameworks for Creating and Dominating Your Niche. Pick it up today on Amazon.com. It's called the Category Design Toolkit. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, David, it sure is great to see you again. How are you? Good, good. Good to be back. And uh, since last time you were with me, you've become a uh, a podcast star, which seems a little bit interesting for a guy who's sort of a uh, somewhat unwilling extrovert. Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, yeah, it's been kind of a surprise. Uh, during I've been doing this pod with a few other friends called the All In Pod, and we started doing it at the beginning of COVID when we were all trapped in our houses and you know, had nothing else to do. And so it's me and three friends, the, the four besties, as we ironically say. And yeah, we've been doing this weekly pod and amazingly it's climbed the charts. And, you know, I think new episodes, you know, tend to be in the top 30 or 40 podcasts and it's done really well. Yeah. Well, congratulations. It's, it's an extraordinary achievement. And, and the thing, you know, given my, um, uh, a sort of lens on business that I find interesting is 
Um, best I can tell, it's a new category of podcast because, of course, we've had talk shows and uh, they've been around for a long time. And it, you, you guys remind me a little bit of the golden days of... Um, well, there was McLaughlin Group. The McLaughlin and, Group. Yeah. Freddie the exactly. Beatle Barnes! Right, you know, right. It's, exactly. it's, you've got a little bit of that vibe. But the thing that makes you guys so interesting is here you are talking about political and, and current events mostly... And your business VC entrepreneur dudes. Well, it's a mix. I mean, we try to talk business and markets and, you know, private investing in VC, but there's only so much to say about that. And we're doing a weekly pod. I like talking about current events. Um, so we do incorporate politics and world affairs. I mean, certainly over the last two years, since we started doing the pod, the big issue was the pandemic. And so there was a lot to say about that. Most weeks, everyone was being affected. And now we've got this war in Ukraine. So that's become a giant issue. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, there's a mix of politics and business and science and markets. It's kind of the view, but done by uh, Silicon Valley VCs, I guess. So it's sort of like that. Uh, one of the things. The view <laughs> by billionaire besties. <laughs> right. Yeah. Something like that. Um <laughs> One of the things people say they like about it is the fact that we can get into debates, vigorous debates about politics, and yet we're all still friends and there's that vibe to it. But there's also, you know, people on the show, uh, you know, breaking each other's balls, that kind of stuff. And they, they like that vibe too. I mean, the name All In, the, the original idea behind it was it was Jason and Chamath had talked about doing a show where they would literally just record a pod at the poker table you know, recording the conversations we were having at the poker table. And uh, that's, that's kind of what it feels like, a lot of the, the banter. Yes, very much so. And I think you, you, uh, you and your besties are a testament to the power of a dialogue podcast. And in this case, of course, the dialogue is always with the same group of guys. And so it's an ongoing dialogue. Um, and so, yeah, nice work. Now, um, let's maybe move to the current situation. Um, you know, we're now well past a month into this horrible war. And uh, what's your current assessment, David? Well, it's, it's hard to know exactly what's happening. I mean, I think we know that it hasn't gone as well as perhaps the Russians had hoped. I mean, Putin seems to have miscalculated. The Ukrainian resistance has been very fierce. Uh, they seem to be pushing the Russians back. However, I mean, there are reports that the Russians have done well in the eastern part of the country. I think I, I read on Twitter they've just taken Mariupol, which was where a lot of fierce fighting had taken place. And there's some reason to believe that the east of the country is the place where the Russians' main objective is. Um, so I, I also don't know that this conflict is going to be suddenly over very quickly either. Um, and, um, you know, let's hope that this peace process, uh, which just started, I think today in Istanbul, let's hope that that works. Um, you know, what I've been preaching from the beginning is for the United States to avoid, you know, escalating its way into world war three, um, which sounds like an obvious thing to say, but you just can't believe the crazy intemperate things that are being said every day on cable news and by, you know, so-called experts who tell us that we're already in World War III, so let's just start acting like it. Um, you know, I've been sort of preaching for, for peace, and um, I think the United States should try and support this peace process that's happening right now. 
And I think we could help sort of cajole the parties into a deal that makes sense. Yes. Now, uh, you know, we just had David Gergen on and, um, one of the things that he shared was uh, an assessment that the, the the likelihood of this thing playing out as uh, he described it as sort of over a long period of time and it ending as a result of sort of two fighters in the 12th or 15th round who were just sort of punch drunk and literally couldn't punch each other out anymore, which was a disheartening thing to hear a man in his position say. And so I'm curious what your reaction to that might be. That the conflict could go on for a while? Yeah, and that it's really not going to end until neither one wants to suffer um, any more losses, human life, um, obviously economic losses, and, and many others. I, I certainly think that's very possible. And the, I mean, it, it's hard to know exactly, but I think that there's probably a little bit too much optimism right now that uh, the, the, the UK, Ukrainians are going to swiftly win this thing and repulse all the Russian forces. Um, I tend to think the, the point I made on the pod, I think maybe two episodes ago was that, you know, the mistake Putin made at the beginning of the war was thinking this was going to be a cakewalk. Obviously it's proven to be much more difficult. I think the mistake maybe the West was making about a week and a half ago was thinking that it's going to be a cakewalk from here to push the Russians back. I think both sides are capable of miscalculation. And this is why I feel like a peace process would be the the right way to go here and try and achieve a ceasefire and a negotiated peace. The People who are pushing for regime change, I mean, uh, you know, toppling the Russian regime, trying to use Ukraine as a proxy to destabilize the Russian state. I mean, this just seems insanely risky to me. You know, who, which of us woke up at the beginning of the year making our New Year's resolutions uh, and, and uh, thinking that the United States of America needs this year to risk recession, famine, and war, including potentially, you know, nuclear war, in order to destabilize the Russian state? When did this become a vital American interest? Um, and yet there are a lot of people, these sort of maximalist thinkers, who won't be satisfied unless we, you know, go all the way here and not just push, um, you know, Russia out of Ukraine, but destabilize Putin and topple his regime. Uh, I just think that is again it's an insane risk for america to take when quite frankly none of our vital interests are in jeopardy um so you know i i hope that uh, cooler heads will prevail here uh, the uh, other interesting thing that's happened of late obviously we had um biden's comments while he was in poland that i think uh, surprised mu- much of the world and historically if you look at places like the middle east the stance, at least, whether you believe it or not, it's a different conversation, but the stance the U.S. has said that it was taking, uh, even though most people would view it as pro-Israel, uh, was one of uh, endeavoring to be a peacemaker, to bring Palestinians and Israelis together, to keep things calmer um, in the Middle East. That's the, that's the public stance. And yet um, we really don't see the Biden administration calling for peace, calling for peace talks discussing potential scenarios. Um, And what we do see is Biden himself saying things that maybe many of us think and believe. I would love the Russian people to have an extraordinary leader and live great lives and participate with its tech industry and be healthy and happy and successful. But to your point, maybe it's not for me to say who runs Russia. But 
we don't see the United States taking its traditional, ex- at least external posture, that it wants to be a peacemaker. Right, exactly. So, and the the Israel example is a good one because in 1973 we had the Yom Kippur War in which Israel was invaded by Egypt and these other Arab powers, and the U.S., even though it was on the side of Israel, worked towards a ceasefire. And you know, they did not. The U.S. did not try and push towards a maximal subjective. Say, for example, when the tide turned and Israel started winning. You know, they didn't let Israel go all the way and, you know, and in order to, you know, uh, escalate this into a much bigger war, they pushed for a ceasefire and uh, Kissinger did. Uh, And the U.S. was seen as an honest broker in that process, even though we were a supporter of Israel. And, you know, I think emotionally and morally very much on the side of the country that had been invaded. Here, I think, you know, we're all sort of on the side of Ukraine. They're the country that's been invaded. You know, we can all denounce Putin's actions as immoral, as criminal, but uh, our objective here should be to try and achieve a ceasefire and peace. And we are, we're not seen in that way anymore. Um, who are the people who are the intermediaries and go-betweens? It's, it's uh, Erdogan from Turkey and Naftali Bennett from Israel. These are the people who are seen as the honest brokers, the U.S. just hasn't Mac- seen that. Macron way. has and, been trying to be that. Macron as degree. well, exactly. So, you know, and who in Washington has even been pushing for uh, a ceasefire peace? All you hear are the insane calls for escalation. Let's step the no-fly zone, which is a euphemism for let's shoot down Russian planes. Uh, I mean, that is basically involving us in a shooting war. And you have so many politicians irresponsibly calling for this, which would be tantamount to World War III, you know, politics makes for strange bedfellows. You know, I had to retweet AOC because she was one of the few politicians to basically explain to people what a no-fly zone really meant. She's like, look, this sounds really good, but it means shooting down Russian planes. Is that something you want? You know, most politicians, they just go along with whatever sounds good. So, you know, it's true that like something like three-quarters of the American public su- supports a no-fly zone. But if you actually explain to them what a no-fly zone means, that you have to take out Russian planes, you have to basically not only take out their planes, in order to put our planes up there in a combat zone, you'd have to take out their anti-aircraft batteries, probably on Russian soil. So when you explain that to people, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. no, I do not support a no-fly zone. But you know, most politicians just look at the polling and they're like, oh, most people support a no-fly zone, so therefore I need to support it. The, you know, A politician who is worth their salt will actually explain to the American people, it's not what you think it is. You know, here's why you should be against it. And we have precious few of those. That's the thing that drives me crazy. But um, but back to your point, you know, this administration, it's not seen as an honest broker. It's not seen as a peacemaker. And we know why. Biden just blurted it out. I mean, regime change has been, is, is, their, is their goal, it's their belief. Um, now, you know, the administration walked it back really quickly, but this is known in Washington as one of those Kinsley gaffes, uh, named after Michael Kinsley, who famously said that a gaffe in Washington is when a politician tells the truth. And in, in other words, you know, a gaffe is not when they like make a mistake or lie. It's when they actually tell you what they really think. When Biden went off prompter there, that was what he really thought. And there are lots of people in Washington who, in the State Department, in the intelligence services, the RAND Corporation even commissioned a study of how 
the U.S. could use Ukraine to destabilize the Russian regime. So for many people in Washington, this is their goal. This is their policy. I still think it was actually – it ended up being quite helpful that Biden just blurted it out because when he actually said it, the reaction and the condemnation was so great that we've had to now be very clear that regime change is not our goal. And so it's actually been helpful in that regard that he spelled it out. But if regime change is not our goal, then what is our goal? Who is saying what that is? I mean, I think our goal should be ceasefire and a peace deal. And we already know the broad contours of this peace deal. We've known it for weeks. It's been reported on widely. There's three main pieces to it, okay? Number one, neutrality for Ukraine. They can't be part of NATO. That's intolerable to the Russians. It always has been. And now Zelensky has come right out and said, we don't need to be part of NATO. Okay, so that's done. Second is Crimea. You know, this was annexed by the Russians in 2014. Um, here's the thing they don't tell you. Um, Crimea is 80 to 90% Russian speakers. They've had a referendum there. They want to be part of Russia. And the Russians have a giant naval base at Sevastopol that gives them control of the Black Sea. If you try to take away Crimea from the Russians, we're talking about something that they will fight to the bitter end for because you're talking about taking away their control over the Black Sea. That is as vital a national interest as you can get for them. Well, so and they're this, a landlocked country otherwise, right? Th this is the Black Sea. I mean, is it's there, a strategic disadvantage for Russia in that they, they don't have port cities. Right. And, and they, their access to the Mediterranean is through the Bosphorus and Turkey, but down through the Black Sea. So this is historically throughout Russian history been incredibly vital to them. But look, you don't have to just make it about what's in Russia's interest. Make it about self-determination. The people of Crimea see themselves as Russian. They are, they're Russian speakers. They want to be part of Russia. And listen, you don't have to make this about appeasement. Just hold a referendum and, you know, people will, will choose. But this is why we have not challenged since 2014, we have not challenged the, the Russian annexation of Crimea is because we know all of these things. This is why Obama did not escalate, pulled the plug. We could have had this whole crazy situation back in 2014, this escalation, this escalatory cycle. And Obama pulled the plug because he wisely said, listen, we don't have a vital American interest there, but the Russians do. And that's why it stood when Russia took over Crimea. But yet, State Department policy as recently as a few months ago, was that the United States of America will never, ever recognize that Crimea belongs to Russia. Just never. So, you know, now, look, I wouldn't just give it to him. I'd make it part of a deal. But that this is something we can certainly trade. This It's a fait accompli anyway, right? It's like it's like Ukraine joining NATO. It's, it's not going to happen. So, so this is something that can be made part of a peace process. And then the third part of, of the the contours of this peace deal, and this is really the the sticking point, are these um, you know breakaway territories in eastern. You've got the um, Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, these these territories in the Donbass, in which you've got ethnic Russians, Russian speakers, and they're fighting Ukrainian far right nationalists. And the thing that no one wants to talk about is that a lot of these you know the the most militant fighters against the independence of these breakaway territories are these far-right nationalist groups. Who are, they're basically neo-Nazis, like the Azov Battalion. And the United States has had a policy for years of not wanting our arms to fall into their hands. Uh, there were actually bills in Congress proposing this because we have been arming Ukraine. Um, so it's a very 
complicated situation over there. It's one of these like ethnic strifes, like we saw in the Balkans, where there's just not really a great answer. I mean, you've got Russians fighting Ukrainian neo-Nazis. I mean, it. You know, we need to find a, a peaceful resolution to this. It's probably going to require some degree of independence for those territories. I certainly don't think that the United States has an interest in who rules the Donbass area or these two breakaway republics that's on par with the risk we're taking right now in terms of recession, famine, and war. So, in any event, so these are the broad contours of the peace deal. I think. This is what we should be pushing for. And quite frankly, if the State Department had pushed for this last year or been willing to deal on any of these points, we wouldn't have had this war. And now, depending on how and where you want to draw the lines, um, you know, there's a scenario that says, and I'm not an expert on Ukrainian geography, but we're talking about more than a quarter, potentially upwards of a third. And now we're starting to hear sort of North Korea, South Korea, or East Berlin, West, or East and West Germany, where we're, quote unquote, cutting the country in half. And so how much territory given to Russia and surrendered by Ukraine do you think uh, needs to happen to get this deal done? I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the, these are sort of the, the details, the sort of the nitty gritty details that are going to matter a lot to the people who live there. And you know, I think we should just be playing a constructive role towards helping the parties get to an acceptable agreement. I mean, look, I don't know what the exact boundaries on a map should be. Um, I don't think we necessarily have to carve up that country. I'm not saying we have to do that. I, I think it's probably going to be sufficient to grant some form of independence to these uh, two territories, the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, territories within the Donbass. I don't know that we have to concede all of eastern Ukraine, and I'm not advocating for that, certainly. Um, I'm suggesting a, we lend our support to a peace process that in which these issues are resolved. Um, but look, you know, part of the problem here is that the State Department has been absolutely adamantly opposed to two of the three pillars, really all three of the pillars, but the two pillars that the parties themselves have already agreed on. I mean, Zelensky has already agreed that Ukraine doesn't have to be part of NATO. And yet... I believe he said for upwards of a decade, has he not? I didn't even see a time limit placed on it. He just said we recognize we're not going to be part of it. And here's, here's the crazy thing is Zelensky just gave an interview to Fried Zakaria in which he said that he was told by Blinken, by our State Department, you will not be part of NATO. Sorry, it's not going to happen for you. But publicly, we're not going to say that because we need to preserve NATO's open door policy. So in other words, the State Department knew that Ukraine wouldn't be part of NATO, but it was more important to them to maintain this fiction of this like open door policy. Now, if you go back to last year, and, and really since 2008, the number one Russian demand, their number one grievance with us in terms of security guarantees, was this idea that Ukraine could be part of NATO. And this, in, you know, if things finally reached ahead in December, where the Russian government gave us a letter. It was a virtual ultimatum, basically saying, and they had three demands, but number one, the most important was Ukraine cannot be part of NATO. We want a written guarantee. And then in throughout all of January, Blinken and um, the Russian um, Foreign Minister Lavrov were met in diplomacy. And Blinken made all these statements 
almost bragging about how the United States was not giving an inch, wasn't budging at all. He said that we've made no change, there will be no change. NATO's door is open and will remain open. And then meanwhile, he's telling Zelensky, you're not going to be part of NATO. Now, what is the point of that kind of foreign policy? Why in the world, if, 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 if it's not important to us for Ukraine to be part of NATO, why wouldn't we tell the Russians that? We told the Ukrainians that, but not the Russians. It would have been giving the Russians the sleeves off our vest. You know, literally, it would have been a, con- a concession to make to them that would have been completely meaningless. And, you know, making that kind of concession could have averted this war. Now, why do you think it matters so much? I mean, is this Russia manufacturing a circumstance to make their desire to uh, begin the reunification of the USSR, if you believe that narrative, by starting in Ukraine? Listen, go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Was it really that objectively threatening to the United States of America that, that Castro was making a deal with the Soviet Union and was going to bring in Soviet you know, arms into Cuba? We felt it was, and we were ready to go to war over that issue. So you can't just look at it from the American point of view and asking that question, are they being reasonable about it? From the Russian standpoint, Ukraine is like Cuba. And they know that if Ukraine becomes a NATO country, that American weapons, soldiers, and bases will be right there on their border. Ukraine has been the staging ground for an invasion of Russia throughout its history. So they're already incredibly paranoid about that. And, you know, we tend to think of NATO as a purely defensive organization, but from their standpoint, it's simply a hostile military alliance that's encircling them. And by the way, it didn't look too defensive to them when NATO took out Muammar Gaddafi from Libya. You know, we toppled him and his regime. That was an offensive action. We also bombed the Serbs through the Russian Didn't he get found in a pipe somewhere and... There's, I mean, it's he, wasn't that um, him. He wasn't he hiding he, in some underground pipe somewhere, and he looked like a crazy. I mean, there was video. <laughs> he, of him. It didn't it's, end well. It did not end well. The mob got him, and um, you know, supposedly there's there's reports that Putin's watched that video like a dozen times of. Gaddafi I've seen that and, too. So yeah, so look, I mean, he's got to be paranoid about that. Um, and like I said, I mean, the Russia, the NATO also conducted bombing campaigns against the Serbs, who the Russians have historically regarded as their, you know, little brothers or whatever. Remember, World War One started because of a battle between uh, the Serbs and the uh, Austrians, and somehow the whole world got pulled into it. So, in any event, for all these reasons, the uh, the the Russians believe that it's just it's just categorically unacceptable to them that Ukraine could be part of NATO. And here's the thing: it's not just like Putin saying this. Um, you know, Yeltsin said it, Gorbachev said it. Um, and if you go all the way back to 2008, this is when all the trouble began. We there was a meeting of NATO in Bucharest where they made this Bucharest declaration, saying that at some point in the future, not now, but at some point, we intend to add Ukraine and Georgia to NATO. The Russians hit the roof when that happened. They said, this is a red line for us. It's not going to happen. Bill Burns, who is our foreign, I think it was foreign ambassador to Russia at the time, who's now Biden's CIA director. So this guy is the current you know, CIA director of the United States. But back then in 2008, he was our emissary to Russia. And he wrote a, a letter, a memo to then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, famous, famous memo called Nyet means yet. No means no. 
And what he said is that this issue of adding Ukraine to NATO is the brightest of all red lines for Russian, for all Russian elites, not just Putin. Everybody in the Russian government was outraged by the idea that Ukraine, this is fundamental to them in terms of being a vital national interest. And so, you know, we like to personalize this and make it about Putin. What I would say is, as we think about trying to create a lasting peace here, don't think about Putin and his desires. Think about what any Russian head of state would think about the situation. And we've known that this is a highly provocative issue for them. Now, look, I mean, you've got the issue of the Baltics. Let's come back to this for a second. Estonia, Latvia, they have a, a border with Russia. They were added to NATO in 2004. Believe me, the Russians hated that. Um, but they were flat on their back back then. You got to remember that in the 1990s with, with Yeltsin, I mean, the Soviet Union had just collapsed. Their economy collapsed. The 90s were a disaster. And back in 2004, Putin was a relatively new head of state. You know, he had uh, taken power around the year 2000. So um, they hated it, but they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, but by two, by the time 2008 came around and we expressed our intention to add Ukraine, they said, absolutely not. This is a red line for us. And we knew this would be a problem for them. And yet we persisted anyway, even though apparently... Biden was telling Zelensky, not Biden, Blinken was telling Zelensky, you're not going to be part of NATO. We're just maintaining the, the open door policy. So we had this contradictory policy that seemed to not have as his real goal, the admission of Ukraine into NATO, but uh, to create an irritant in our relationship with, with uh, you know, in the relationship between Russia and the United States. And I think given what the Russians said last year, given the fact they presented us with an ultimatum, given the fact that Lavrov said we've reached the boiling point, and given the fact they had amassed a couple hundred thousand troops on Ukraine's border, it was obvious they meant business. I don't know why we wouldn't have given them the sleeves off our vest, this meaningless concession to us, absolutely meaningless, to prevent the war. Now, look, can I say with total certainty that this would have prevented the war. I, I can't say that. I can't, I don't know for sure. But what I can say is that this U S state department did not do everything within its power to avoid this war because they would have made that concession if they really wanted to do everything in their power. Yes. I have been very, uh, unimpressed with uh blinken uh, he, he went on TV and absolutely lied about Afghanistan. I mean, bold faced lied about many things. And in particular, that our country was doing everything to get our folks out and the translators and their families and the other uh, many thousands of Afghanis who worked for and supported us while we were there. He said we were doing everything and anything to get them out, and they've done fuck all. As a matter of fact, countries like um, uh, uh, Canada and Spain and many others, Ecuador and many others have been accepting um, uh, Afghanis and uh, the fucking U.S. will not do it, even for Afghanis who are American citizens and are trying to get their family members over. And so um, uh, I guess my point is uh, every time I see him on TV, I want to do something to him that if I wasn't a better person, I would do. Um, He's been very now, ineffectual. I mean, very ineffectual. I remember that issue that you're talking about. And I remember there being a letter, um, as I recall, it was written on May 1st of that year from members of Congress to Blinken and the State Department saying, listen, we know we're pulling out of Afghanistan later this year. There have been all these people who've helped us, these translators, the people who've come to 
our aid. We need you to expedite their visas because they're mired in some bureaucracy. And I think it was related to COVID or something. And the State Department did nothing. They sat on their hands. I mean, they were incredibly ineffectual. And, and, and they've been similarly, in the lead up to this war, they've been similarly ineffectual. Now, one of the crazy things about it is once the war broke out and the Russians invaded, and look, let me just be really clear. The decision to invade was Putin's. You know, it was his decision, the moral atrocities and the results. They're all I mean, some people him. can hear your point of view and, and, and sort of say, hmm, is Sachs a Putin supervisor uh, or a sympathizer? No, I'm not a sympathizer. He, he didn't have to invade. That was his decision. I'm saying the invasion is on him. But I'm saying the U.S. State Department did not do everything it could do to avoid this war. And again, it would have been the sleeves off our vest. We wouldn't have been giving up anything material to basically make that concession. I mean, look, Blinken's job is to negotiate with our adversaries. That's what a diplomat does. You can't just talk to your friends. There's no need to negotiate deals with your friends. I mean, that, that's not the tough, those aren't the tough deals. You negotiate deals with your adversaries to avoid conflict and war. And that's what he completely failed at. Now, listen, the, the humanitarian disasters on Putin, I hope he loses the war. I hope he's driven out. But what happened when the invasion started? You then had Jen Psaki from the podium of the White House saying, this war has absolutely nothing to do with NATO expansion. Nothing to do with it. Well, I would say it has somewhere between something to do with it and everything to do with it. Definitely not nothing to do with it. And yet, but what about this narrative that's been pushed that what, what Putin really wants is his place in history and he's going to build the rebuild the USSR and then some and, and then he's going to take over all of Europe. And, you know, he's trying to well, I mean, what do you think about that narrative? He doesn't have the capabilities to do that. He just doesn't have the capabilities to do that. I mean, this is one of the contradictions you hear is that we need to get more involved in this war because Putin is a threat to all of Europe. And if we don't nip him in the bud like Hitler, he's going to basically be marching all the way to Berlin and Paris. But then uh, the other side of their mouth, you'll hear these same people say, oh, yeah, the Ukrainians are winning the war. So, look, I mean, Putin, I don't know what's in his heart of hearts. He may want you know, that former czarist glory or whatever, but he simply doesn't have the capability to wage offensive war on a theater as large as Europe. He, can bear, he can't even get the job done in Ukraine. Um, you know, he's got an economy that is smaller than Italy's. It's like the 15th biggest economy. It's one fifteenth the size of our economy. It literally I, I believe smaller. California is 2x the economy, the GDP, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, we are, yes, the United States is 15 times greater than the Russia's economy. At the peak of the Cold War, we were only three times bigger than them. Um, his population is shrinking because their life expectancy is much lower than ours in Western Europe's. And, um, and clearly, he doesn't have the, the, the military to, uh, to, again, to project war across the whole European continent. So, you know, you have to ask not just what his motivations are, which are hard for us to know, but ask what his capabilities are. What he does have is 6,000 6, nuclear weapons that he's already put on high alert, and he's threatened us with severe retaliation if we get involved. So, you know, the, the thing that I think is insane is you have, again, all these, these um, pundits on TV saying, well, oh, that's just a bluff. We don't need to worry about that. The fact he's put his nukes on high alert. No, we don't need to worry. And then on the other hand, they say that Putin's a madman who's capable of anything. Well, I mean, so which, which is, is it? it? 
Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know what he's capable of. Uh, what I do know is that we do not have a vital interest here uh, that requires us to get militarily involved in a way that may cause a nuclear war. That's just insane. And yet you hear this all the time. So just to make the point, the earlier point clear, Russia's GDP is 1.3 trillion. By the way, Apple's market cap is almost 3x that. <laughs> and California's uh, GDP is 2.5 trillion. So now right. let me go on to this. We don't have a na- we don't have any national interest here. There are some people on the right who have a very sort of quote America first agenda and a very, quote, isolationist agenda and think that we should pull back from the rest of the world. And then there's people on the left and some on the right who think we should be the world's uh, police force and such. And that what's happening here is an attack on a a democracy. And our job is to protect and, and grow democracies. The other thing that we have to acknowledge is that um, whether people today like it or not, the deal the U.S. essentially had with democratic Europe post-World War II was uh, you guys have your militaries along and at a size where you can hold the Russians back for about two weeks until we get there. And, and, you know, a lot of Democrats don't like this, but Trump was all over this topic, which is why are we paying so much? Why are we funding all this stuff? And you guys aren't funding your militaries. And now all of a sudden, the United States isn't coming to the defense, at least with boots on the ground and in the air in a situation like this. And we have other European countries going, oh, shit, uh, maybe the cavalry isn't coming and maybe it's time to materially increase defense spending. And so um, what say you, David, about the, hey, we kind of promised these folks, it, it, it maybe indirectly, but it was sort of a supposedly, <laughs> if you like that word, um, an un- unwritten agreement that we had. And we're not defending uh, the Ukraine. And now if you're France or Germany or the UK or pick who, Poland or whoever, you're saying, holy fuck, these guys said they would come for me. And I don't know that they will. I think, it, well, I think there's a difference between NATO countries and non-NATO countries. Ukraine is, as we've been discussing, is not a member of NATO. We do not have uh, a military obligation to defend them. And therefore, us getting militarily involved in uh, in uh, an optional war where we don't have that obligation against a nuclear-armed Russia, I just think that would be insanely risky. And yet, there are plenty of people calling for that. So I do not, you know, I do not favor that. I do think we will, def- as Biden said, we will defend every square inch of NATO territory. I do believe that there is unanimity on that. I don't think we will renege on that obligation. And I think we will defend NATO. But to your, to your larger question about what's the correct direction of U.S. foreign policy, I think we have to understand there's, there's sort of two big opposing schools of thought in foreign policy. There's realism and there's idealism. And idealism has been the dominant school of thought pretty much since uh, Bill Clinton, since, and really since the end of the Cold War. I think Herbert Walker Bush was maybe the last realist we had as, as a president. Um, but the idealist school has more or less been dominant for the last 30 years. And, and, and to put it crudely, the, the idealist school is that we will be the world's policemen, right? I mean, they will, they will gussy it up by saying, well, we have these international institutions and we have to support the rule of law and, you know, and the rules-based international order. But what they're really saying 
is that the U.S. is going to be the world's policeman. And the reason why is because when somebody breaks one of these rules that we're talking about, who do they call, right? They call the United States. I mean, we're 911, right, for, for the rest of the world. And the problem is, if you look at the results of this philosophy over the past 30 years, look at what it's got us. I mean, look at the Middle East. We wasted over $6 trillion doing nation building in Iraq and Afghanistan. We, you know, at the end, we, we, we fought our longest war in American history in Afghanistan at the end of it. We, we lost, we retreated in this most embarrassing way. This Afghan army that was 300,000 strong turned out to be a total fiction. It collapsed within days of us leaving. Iraq, we basically have handed to Iran on a silver platter. You know, their, their proxies now control that country. Then you've got Libya where we took out Gaddafi, as we're saying, and in its, in Gaddafi's place has just been anarchy. They've got open air slave markets going over there. The country's been plunged into total chaos. Then you've got Syria where we, you know, we basically went into Syria to oppose Assad. Then we realized that the people who are trying to take out Assad were actually ISIS and Al Qaeda. And then we switched sides and realized, oh, wait, we need to get ISIS and Al-Qaeda, then we joined with the Russians and trying to get them. We didn't even know what we we're doing. And there's a, a great article illustrating this point. I think it was in the LA Times, where literally there were groups in Syria who were fighting each other. And one of them was backed by the Pentagon. And one of them was backed by the CIA. We were literally fighting each other. Our agencies of our government were fighting each other in Syria. So we didn't have a clue. You can't make that shit up. You can't make this shit up. I mean, we did not have a clue about what we're doing in the Middle East. And what a shame. I mean, the trillions and trillions of dollars that we spent. So now this country is 30 trillion in debt. All the lives lost, I mean, of our soldiers, you know, and, and then also the, the people in these countries. I mean, do you know there's a study recently about Iraq where they tried to estimate the death toll based on excess mortality. And they there are some estimates that up to a million people have died as a result of not just the, the the wars, not just the soldiers and civilian deaths, but all the murder and mayhem that's been unleashed in that part of the world. A million deaths. It just boggles the mind. Half a million estimated in Libya. So this is what happens when the United States goes blundering around the world like a rampaging elephant, you know, it causes this untold destruction. And then, you know, the idealists say, well, we're being the world's policemen. Really? That, you know, but then if, you want, if you want to run with that, that analogy, let me just run with that analogy for a second. I've been thinking about this. What kind of policing works best? Community policing, right? We all know that. When the police officers are from the neighborhood and they know the people and they know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and they can speak the language, right? That's what we all want in this country is community policing. But somehow we think we're going to go into a country. We don't speak the language. We don't even know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. We accidentally drone. I mean, remember the last day of our occupation in Afghanistan? We droned that poor man and his entire family. Look, it's not because we're evil. We didn't want to do that, but we don't know. We don't. We don't have a clue. He was loading a bunch of uh, water jugs into the back of his car, and we thought he was a terrorist loading bombs. And so we droned him and killed, killed him and a bunch of his kids. That is what happens when you send us in a police force that doesn't know what it's doing. We have no business 
being there. So this is what this excessive idealism has gotten us. And so listen, I'm very much in the school of thought that we need an adjustment towards a more realistic point of view. And realism would say that you start by asking, what is America's vital national interest in getting militarily involved in a part of the world? And unless we have a vital interest that we can define, we don't put our boots on the ground. And and what about empathy, uh, Dr. Sachs? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's all of us have, I'm sure, uh, similar experiences when we see these horrible citizen bombings and it, you know, it's mass murder. And you could, I mean, some people want to call it genocide. I don't know what the fucking, but the bottom line is it's, 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 it's obscene mass murder. Right. And so, uh, and it's, of course, I always love when they say civilians as if murdering soldiers is somehow better than murdering civilians in a country that, didn't do anything to provoke you. Right. Um, but it's funny well, I'm that not, you're not. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not an isolationist. So I wouldn't go all the way towards isolationism. I guess I, the school, of, I guess you could say I, I believe in selective engagement. And so some of the things I believe that we should do that maybe an isolationist would not believe is I do believe that we should create alliances that are useful to us. Like we should not do this alone. I think it's useful to rally the Europeans in an alliance for the common defense. I think that they should pay more. I'm happy that they're stepping up and sharing more of the burden. I think it's useful for us to rally the free countries of East Asia in a balancing alliance against China. I think that would be quite useful. So I think that's helpful. And, and look, just because we don't put boots on the ground doesn't mean we don't help. We can obviously provide humanitarian assistance. And I do believe that in a targeted way, we can provide weapons and sanctions. And so I have not, I've which not is exactly a, what we're doing, which right? is what we're doing. I mean, we've kind of, I mean, the crazy thing is we've kind of blundered onto more or less the right policy here after flirting with all the disastrous ones, right? The disastrous policy would have been the no fly zone that would have put, put us boots in the sky, if not on the ground in uh, Ukraine. So Biden at least kept he's kept us out militarily. He's been very clear about that. I think that's very good. Um, I think that some targeted sanctions and the providing of weapons to the Ukrainians can defend themselves. I think that it that makes sense. But I do think we should have an end game in mind in doing this. I don't think we should be just trying to fund. There's a lot of people who speculate that our objective here is to bleed Russia by uh, in a quagmire is to is to basically create a in Afghanistan, in uh, you know Eastern Europe, where you remember the the Soviet Union really bled out in Afghanistan and it contributed to their collapse. So there's speculation that people want to reenact uh, Afghanistan for for the Russians by turning Ukraine into that. I think that would be a humanitarian disaster for the Ukrainians, uh, and I think it, it poses too great a risk to America that somehow there's an accident and we could get sucked in. Uh, and you know this is going to have huge repercussions on the global economy. I mean, I think there's already risk of recession and there's already risk of famine. I mean, if the spring planting in Ukraine doesn't happen, and with each passing day, it looks like it's not, there could be millions of people around the world, especially in poor countries who go hungry because they don't get enough calories because Russia, because Ukrainian wheat uh, feeds huge parts of the world. So there's all these reasons for us to I hope want they're doing a, a lot more 
planting in Canada than they otherwise would have because <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of wheat in Canada. And obviously there's a lot of wheat in the middle of the U S but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, people do forget that those countries are a big part of the quote unquote breadbasket for that part of the world. And, uh, farmers fucking matter. <laughs> totally. And I mean, w- what is the reason we don't have a peace deal? I mean, we all agree now on Ukraine not being part of NATO. We should agree on Crimea because that's already a fait accompli. So what we're talking about is an ethnic war in the Donbass between two groups of people. And, you know, we have to, we need to get to a satisfactory resolution of that. Otherwise, millions of people around the world are going to go hungry. It's just, it's kind of crazy. This is why I don't think it's in America's interest to have a protracted conflict. We should be working towards a ceasefire and a peace deal. And so one thing I would consider doing is, um, you know, I would put sanctions back on the table, meaning that we can reestablish economic ties with Russia if we work out a reasonable deal. There's some people who are saying, no, we can never, the West can never do business with Putin's Russia again. I don't see how that helps us, you know, uh, lead towards, you know, a, a satisfactory resolution. It seems to me that sanctions should be used to create pressure for peace, not create a new normal. Um, and then the other piece. Well, of and it, if I it, could on that yeah. one, David, you know, and, uh, I, I pounded the table for stopping doing business in Russia as loud as anybody I know of. And I took a lot of heat for it. Uh, particularly in the beginning. And so um, I think that's a very important thing that we've done. And what people seem to forget is, you know, so if you go by, by way of analogy, if you go to the Trump position on China and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, fuck it. We should never build any, don't, don't buy any, anything from China. We should not, you know, we should do everything here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, on one hand, we want security in our supply chain. We want jobs in this country. But at the same time, if we don't do business with China or we don't do business with Russia, to your point, what's going to happen? Those economies will live in permanent recession or depression. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I would imagine most people would think uh, North Korea is in a permanent depression. And when you do that, of course, you create a nation of desperate people. It's terrible for their people. Us doing business with Russia, us doing business with China, as much as ide- ideologically we're uh, different from them, and we the nuclear threat is now feeling more real than ever before. But at the same time, if we cut them off completely and we put their people in desperation, that will drive their governments to do things we don't want. So there's, I guess my point in all of this is there's some magic line we're trying to walk between doing business with them in a way so that their people have some shot of equality of life um, and yet not overdoing business with them. So we overfund their bad things and we fuck up our supply chain. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think our response to this needs to be targeted and, you know, you hear a lot, this term collapsing the Russian economy. I mean, you're, you know, you're talking about 144 million people who, if they grow, if, you know, the next generation of Russians grows up in a collapsed economy, they're going to hate us. They're not going to blame Putin for that. They're going to blame the West for collapsing their economy. So I just think, you know, I think sanctions can be one of the uh, tools in our toolkit to bring about the outcome we want, but we should be targeted about it. And right now it just feels like, you know, retaliation, you know, there's no, there's no end game in mind. Interesting. Now, anything else you want to say about the war? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's it's amazing. I think, 
you know, one of the things that's been unfortunate about it is that if you do bring up any of the things I'm bringing up, you get a call to, you get accused of being this like Putin apologist. And it goes back to what Jen Psaki said at the White House right after she said that this war has nothing to do with NATO expansion. And then she said, and if you, if you say anything like that, you're repeating Putin talking points. And ever since then, anybody who brings up the fact that, you know, there's any prehistory to this conflict that, you know, the idea that not Putin, but Russia itself might have a vital national interest in Crimea, you know, or something like that. Um, you know, they think you're repeating Putin talking points. And it, the problem with it is it prevents us, I think, from reaching an understanding. By the way, I mean, you know this. I invest 100% in American companies, American founders, and I create jobs in America. I have like zero business interests in uh, Russia, oh, come on, Ukraine, David. We know or you're, China, we know for you're, that matter. We know you're building that new, giant new hotel uh, in downtown Moscow. We, we know that. It's, you've got those shell companies. We know how this bullshit works. Right. right. But, it's, but, I mean, but if you don't have people pointing out these things, then I don't know how we're going to get to a satisfactory peace deal. You know, we're going to end up with another regime change operation. Um, and we've just seen how badly those go. Well, we, we're so good at that. Though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So everyone great. just assumes. Everyone just assumes that if Putin gets toppled, we're going to end up with like Gorbachev 2.0. But is that really the way the world works? I mean, you know, if you understand the Russian system, it's been compared to like a mafia where like these oligarchs are like sort of like mob bosses or something, and then Putin's the boss of bosses. If the boss of bosses gets taken out, who do you think replaces him? Like some Democrat, like a Gorbachev, you know, a Yeltsin or something? No, it's yeah, going to be the, a bigger strongman, right? Yeah, it's going to be the next biggest, baddest boss. And he's going to, you know, probably kill a few of those other contenders. And then, you know, now that person is very unlikely to be, you know, more hospitable to our interests. Um, you know, it could be someone much worse, could be a hardliner. Um, you know, they got 6,000 nukes over there. We don't want chaos we don't want uh those those nukes getting loose so it seems to me that we're opening pandora's box by having these maximalist objectives you know um uh maximum maximum upside also means maximum downside i think maximum risk now, now the flip side is are we teaching you know to kind of nudge you a little bit mm -hmm. are we teaching other powers with nukes that you can fuck around with whoever you want as long as we don't have an alliance with them that says we have to respond. And uh, we're going to let you do that because you have nukes. And then when Mitt Romney comes out and says, I'm sick and tired of hearing about what he's going to do to us, he should be worried about what we're going to do to him. And so does this inspire China to do something in that part of the world that maybe we don't want them to do or India for that matter? Uh, are we sending the wrong message? Because, Gergen said to me in no uncertain terms, he thought our failure and how we pulled out of Afghanistan has led to this, making us look weak. And if uh, the world views us not willing to engage with a uh, uh, nuclear power as a further sign of weakness, are we emboldening? Emboldening? Is that a word? <laughs> are we empowering yeah, sure. other nuclear powers to do uh, uh, horrible things because the U.S. doesn't have the, uh, the cojones to stand up? Well, I, this just seems like a, a wreck. You know, I hear all the people saying, well, Putin's bluffing, you know, when he mentions it. It's like, really? How do you know that? You just said he's a madman. Um, what I know is that Ukraine has it's has never been. I mean, we have to talk. Let's talk real here. 
it's never been a vital American interest who rules Ukraine. That's why they're not part of NATO. We have not felt the need to defend them. They are right on NATO's border. Let's not forget what Barack Obama said in 2014 when we had the Crimean crisis. We could have had this whole situation in 2014. Like I said, Obama pulled the plug. He said, listen, this is a case where Ukraine to some degree is always going to be subject to some amount of Russian domination because they're right there. And the Russians view it as a vital American interest of theirs and it's not a vital interest of ours. And this is a situation where we have to be really clear about what we're willing to go to war for. So listen, if you want to apply the the Gergen theory all the way to its logical conclusion, we're going to have to go to war for every country in the world every time it gets invaded. And, you know, that's the policeman of the world type of idea. Now, that doesn't mean the Russians have to get away with it. I don't think they're going to because the Ukrainians have put up such a fierce resistance. So the answer here is the Ukrainians should defend themselves. They should defend their own country. We can provide weapons as we have, and they can drive the Russians out and drive them back. And I think and we should, but we should use the opportunity to try and create a peace process as soon as we can. Um, but look, just in, 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 you know, you want to know about Taiwan. I mean, look, Taiwan should be looking at this and saying, wow, the Ukrainians actually did a phenomenal job beating back the Russians, just like Israel has done a phenomenal job beating back a whole bunch of hostile neighbors. We should basically do what they've done. We need to basically heavily arm. We need to maybe have conscription. We need to have all, you know, if we really want to defend ourselves, we got to defend ourselves. They can do it and we can support them. But uh, this idea that we got to basically have boots on the ground everywhere in the world, anytime anyone gets attacked, that's the recipe for furthering away American strength and blundering all, you know, committing these types of blunders all over the world that we talked about. Thank you for that. (laughs) Now, maybe let's uh, no, seriously, thank you. I mean, I I love to hear what you have to say. Now, let's maybe move to uh, uh, the big concern I had coming into this year, which was escalating violence in the U.S., and on both sides of the uh, the political spectrum, the left and the right, and and the in my uh, estimation, the increasing likelihood that around the midterms, and of course the coming presidential election, which is feels like a billion years away right now, but that there could be more violence. That we've now gotten to a place where in the United States. More Americans think other Americans are their enemy than at any other time in history. And there's some academics and, and, and others saying that, you know, their pattern recognition around civil war is, is present and so forth and so on. And so um, kind of what, what do you make of sort of this escalation of, of violence and, and rhetoric in the coming election, uh, both uh, midterms and the presidential election, David? Well, there's no question the country is very divided. Uh, I'm not sure that I see the same threat for uh, for violence uh, that you do yet. Um, but there's no question that the the country is very divided. Um, I I think uh, I think though that I mean, what do I think will happen in November? I think that the polling shows that it's going to be a red wave. I mean, there's I think this administration is going to get rebuked uh, in a huge way. And so there may be more unity than people think. Uh, it just won't be a unity like that the administration likes. Well, I, I was checking before we started, and uh, recent polling show that seven out of ten Americans do not have confidence in Biden's handling of the war, and that his approval rating now is down to forty percent, with a fifty-five percent 
uh, not approved. And uh, 40%, I don't know if it's a record, but I mean, it's pretty low approval rating. Yeah. And it was, it was this way before the war even started. You go back to January, um, there was polling showing him, you know, around these numbers, some polls were as low as 38%. And you got to remember back in January, we still had a good economy. We still do, although it's slowing down, we should talk about that. But, uh, you know, we had a, a president in January who was presiding over peace and relative prosperity, and yet his poll numbers were still very low. And now we are faced with the prospect of war and recession. So things have only gotten worse. I think there was a brief moment here where you saw uh, the administration pointing to uh, a bump in Biden's poll numbers related to the war. Um, because, look, the American people always rally around the president when there's a crisis. But I think that effect is wearing off. I don't think it lasts as long as it used to. And presidents who try to wag the dog by making some international crisis uh, a larger issue, that strategy, I don't think that... I don't think that ever works. I don't think it works anymore if the goal is to try and distract the American people from what's happening domestically. And so you think there's a red wave coming? Yeah. I mean, I think there was before Ukraine, um, before the, uh, the, um, the slowdown. And, uh, and now, now the situation's even worse. You, you go back to uh, November last year when you had the election in Virginia, the new governor there, Yunkin. Glenn Youngkin, he won a state for the governorship uh, that Biden won by 10 points and Youngkin won by two to three points. So you had there in one year since Biden's election, a 12 to 13 point swing. You had in New Jersey, a completely unknown challenger who there, he was so unknown, the Republican party didn't even give him any money. And he came within a couple of points of beating Murphy and, um, and, you know, Murphy had, had uh, I mean, Biden won that state by like 20. So <clears throat> the um, there's been a huge swing over the past year, year and a half. And the, the bottom line is, I think the country is very unhappy with Biden's first year in office. I mean, you had this reckless spending, which has led to out-of-control inflation, which is now causing the Fed to raise interest rates, which is causing a slowdown and could cause a recession later this year. So I think all of that spending has backfired. You also had all these proposals for even more spending that didn't go through for massive tax increases didn't go through. Remember, Manchin stopped the whole build back better, but the country spent months and months uh, going through that, you know, going through that. And then you have the fact that COVID has not subsided. I think, you know, perhaps it was a completely. Now, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, which is a new variant. Warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson. Who knows what we're right. what we're in store for us? The weather gets warmer. And right. I mean, the, the country is is um, is exhausted by covid. And now Biden made this this campaign promise that he was going to shut down the virus. I don't think it was something he was in. I don't think any president could make that happen. But um, but he did. And um, and the Democrats have held on to these covid restrictions much longer the, Dem the blue states have than the red states, and people are sick of the COVID restrictions. They're sick of COVID, but they're even more sick of the restrictions. Uh, so you saw that as well. And, and actually, it was, it was Murphy from Virginia, who you saw just a couple of months ago, that um, there, there are five blue states that finally got rid of its, their mask mandates and uh, their COVID restrictions. And that was led by Murphy because he got scared straight in the last election that people were sick and tired of these COVID restrictions. And 
he conducted focus groups to find out why he had almost lost the election. It was all because of this. It was because of school closures and the restrictions and the mandates. And he went to the White House and said, listen, we got to like roll these things back. And the White House was sort of sitting on its hands trying to decide what it was going to do. And then he said, I just can't wait anymore. And so then he basically repealed the stuff in New Jersey and then five state, other states followed suit. And so the White House missed his chance. Biden missed his chance to really lead us out of COVID back towards normality, which is what his whole campaign was premised on. Um, and so, I think people yeah. on the left gave him uh, a pass for it because they thought, well, let's err on the side of safety. Uh, and the people that were center and center right, to your point, said uh, either, A, I don't believe in it and I'm never getting vaxxed and I'm never wearing a mask. Go fuck yourself. Or B, hey, I'm 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 you know, I'm vaxxed. I'm boosted. Uh, you know, let me give it a whirl out here with this thing. And, and if I end up getting a, a bad cold or a bad flu uh, when I get covid as opposed to dying, um, that's, you know, to go to my um, best friend's wedding. Uh, that's a risk I'm going to take. And so fuck you. That's what I want to do. Right. The Democratic governor who figured this out first was Jared Polis um, from Colorado, I believe. And what he said is, if you get vaxxed, you're done. That's basically, look, he's like, look, you've done your part. You've done all you can do. You're done. You get vaxxed, right? And so that message, he's he's actually fairly popular in Colorado. Um, and uh, But but look, the, the the Democrats have a problem, which is that within the Democratic base, there are these COVID dead-enders who just never want it to end. They're still wearing their masks, and they still want these restrictions, and they still believe in Fauci and all that kind of stuff. The country, I think, has moved on. I mean, the vast majority of Republicans- You're, you're not a Fauci fan, are you? <laughs> I'm not. No. Um, he's just been wrong about too many things, you know? Uh, but and, and you, you don't believe yeah. what, the, what, what people who like him say, which is, no, no, he hasn't been wrong. He- takes the science that there is today. He communicates that. And when the science changes, he changes. You don't accept that? I don't think the science has really changed that much. I mean, we knew in the summer of 2020, there was already studies coming out showing that lockdowns didn't work. Meaning, you know, in the places they were being tried, you just weren't getting better COVID outcomes than places where you had lockdowns. But what about like the, the, the Uber example of this in Sweden, where they sort of said, fuck the whole thing. And sure enough, they ended up killing a lot of uh, people in that country and their uh, leadership, who I forget his name now, who's the equivalent of the Fauci in the country, resigned and apologized. And so maybe complete lockdowns don't work. But at the same time, the complete not lockdowns didn't seem like they worked. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that any of these measures did anything except maybe delay or postpone people getting the virus. Now, if you postpone it till the point where there's a vaccine, then you do mitigate some of the harshest outcomes. And so I think there there was some value maybe that you could argue about in that first year. But since we've I had mean, the in vaccine, our family, we worked really hard not to get the disease. My, my in-laws are 91 and 85. And and uh, we took, uh, you know, fairly uh, extreme measures, particularly in the beginning, and and were pretty tough on it until the vaccines, and then you know began to uh, right. ease up over time. But uh, and and we didn't get it, and most importantly, my in laws didn't get it, and 
and and we fucking socially distanced and we wore masks <laughs> and we we didn't go anywhere when we were told not to go anywhere and you know maybe we were overly compliant but at the same time uh, you know, my father-in-law is in the orchard today working with my wife. Yeah. Look, I get it. I mean, we were very careful during that first year as well. And we were doing all the crazy stuff like wiping down the packages and all that bullshit, you know, with the fomites and, you know, they, I mean, they told us so much bullshit, right? I mean, it was so ridiculous, but look, I was super fastidious that first year because I thought the experts actually knew what they were talking about. And, but once we, they had the vaccine, then we basically went back to normal to the extent that California would let us. And cause I, there's just nothing else you can do. And, um, and after getting the vaccine, I then got the Delta variant, which, you know, it was, it wasn't fun. It was no, uh, walk in the park, but it wasn't a big deal. And then the rest of and one of my kids got it along with me. And then, you know, the rest of the family got Omicron. And honestly, that was like a big nothing burger. I mean, it was very mild. So the virus, I think, you know, assuming Omicron is the new normal, it's the new variant, it's much milder than previous variants. And um, I just think we should just go back to normal at this point. We've done everything we can. Um, now, look, that doesn't mean that individuals shouldn't take precautions at an individual level. Like you said, your 93-year-old parents are in a different risk category. They should be more careful. Um they may want to get the umpteenth booster or whatever because, you know, it just makes more sense for them. So everyone's going to have to decide what precautions they want to do. But I don't think we need the government making these decisions for people anymore. Um, it's just uh, the virus is now endemic. It's reached a, a level of severity that, um, you know, makes it more consistent with something like the flu. And... Um, we have treatments for it now. It's not a death sentence typically. And we just have to get, get on with life. And I think that's what the country wants. And, um, and look, it's, it's happened already. I mean, even the blue states more or less have moved. Um, I mean, California is sort of an outlier. We still have a state of emergency here. But things are more or less back to normal. I mean, look, I think that the, the, the blue states have realized they have to get back to normal or they're going to get you know spanked in this election even more. I'm just looking at the death rates so uh as of march 28th uh reporting 900 deaths and a seven day average of 764 and our most recent peak was at the beginning of february and that was uh um in the thousands an average day february 1st was uh 3500 uh, with a seven-day average of uh, 2,600. So, I mean, it's meaningfully down from, um, you know, let's just call this the beginning of April to the beginning of February. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, what about the GOP in California? Uh, here's what I don't understand. So, all this work gets done on a re uh, recall. Much money is raised. It costs the taxpayer God knows how many millions to actually execute this thing. And it looked like at one point there was real momentum coming here. But then where's the fucking candidate who can win? Right. They're literally like, this is the part I don't understand. Uh, I would like to see a strong, particularly, you know, let's just call it right of center uh, uh, GOP leader emerge in California. I think, I think we're way over tilted on the left. And yet the recall, they make it happen. It's like you get to play in the Super Bowl, but you don't bring a team. Like, what's right. going on in California with the GOP? 
Well, it's it's California is a really tough state for the GOP because it's just so deep blue. I mean, the the party affiliation here it's two to one Democrat over Republican, so the Democrat has a huge advantage. And I actually think that maybe an independent would have a better chance than a Republican because there's a lot of people in California who just won't vote Republican; they just see it as a scarlet R. But they might consider an independent. And so I'm actually supporting a guy named Michael Schellenberger, who wrote the book San Francisco, uh, which it's about you know how these progressive policies have ruined cities like San Francisco. He's very thoughtful about the issue of homelessness and 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 then all the follow-on consequences that come out of that, like you know like our crime problem in cities. So. Um, so that's who I'm supporting, and I know it's a long shot, but I think it is possible because of the way the California primary system is structured. There's not there's not like a, a Democratic primary and a Republican primary that are separate. There's one jungle primary, and then the two top vote getters in the primary go to a runoff. So Newsom will be one of those two, and then the question is who's number two? If Schellenberger can beat the leading Republican for the number two spot. Then we get a runoff between, you know, Newsom, the Democrat, and Schellenberger, the Independent, and so, you know, and then I think anything could happen because I think Schellenberger makes a much more compelling case than Newsom does, and I think there's a lot of latent discontent in the electorate uh, for Newsom. I think that, you know, you look around California, the place is a mess. I mean, our cities, the homelessness problem is out of control, the crime is out of control. The schools are a disaster. I mean, all of these like very the fundamental fires, quality. David, yeah. the fires. Yeah. I supported the recall over that one issue because when Newsom came to power, it was the quote worst year ever. And he fucking did nothing. There was no tripling the size of Cal Fire. There was no call to Silicon Valley and, and the incredible innovation we have in California to partner with the uh, public sector to come up with breakthroughs and new technologies and approaches. There was, none of, there was none of that. There was no deal with Australia and New Zealand to create an international force where when our guys were off, they could be helping theirs. Invite. There was fucking nothing. There was no plan. There was no discussion. There was no nothing. And then guess what? We had the worst year ever. And while there's been some improvements, and I know they're doing some culling of the forest and getting rid of it, which is good, there's movement. But given the size of the crisis, the response, in my opinion, on just that one issue has been absolutely pathetic. I mean, what issue hasn't the this governor been pathetic on? I mean, like name one success. I mean, we have all this money. The state is like, we have so much money. We have this huge surplus that I think was caused by the market boom over the last couple of years. Um, and where's the money all gone, you know? Well, and then here's the other one I've been really hoping to talk to you about in this regard. About this time last year, we started writing a lot about how um, people didn't remember that Silicon Valley used to be in Boston. Mm -hmm. And the Bay Area became the category king region for tech based on a whole bunch of things that you and I and I think most of us understand around venture capital and entrepreneurship and the integration with Stanford and so forth and so on. An ecosystem emerged. Well, people seem to forget that that isn't carved in stone. And all of a sudden, places like Austin and Houston and, and, and Miami and many others are, you know, when you got the mayor of Miami putting up billboards in San Francisco saying, hey, if you're a tech company, text me. We actually want you here. 
Um, and so the other outrageous thing, in my opinion, I want your reaction is how Newsom has essentially sat back and let huge parts of the tech industry and fought with Elon Musk and all these things and let it all move to other parts of the country. What say you, David Sachs? Totally. A hundred percent. We had something like 1% net migration out of the state last year. I mean, like a couple hundred thousand people left like net. It's one of the first times it's ever happened. Normally California has been growing. We have people, more people leaving the state than moving in. And the people who are leaving are the job creators. I mean, they are, it's a lot of these companies. It's a lot of high tech workers. Uh, it's people we would want to stay here, but they're, they find California to be way too hard a place to do business. Now, the reason why this always been true of California, but the thing that's changed is remote work and distributed work during COVID people started doing their work from home and they realized it could be anywhere. You know, once they didn't have to come to the office, they realized, well, wait a second, I can move to where I really want to live. I can move to a, a, a no tax state and do my job from there. And people, especially knowledge workers, again, who can work from anywhere started moving out of the state. And now, uh, you know, a lot of those people then become founders and they create their companies in other places. So it's a huge problem. I mean, the geographic monopoly that Silicon Valley has had has been broken by remote work by, by this that started during COVID. And we're tremendously complacent about that. And Elon said this when he pulled up stakes and moved his headquarters to Austin, Texas. He said, look, California's been winning for a long time and maybe they've gotten complacent and they've kind of forgotten how that, you know, it's like a winning team that's been winning too long and starts to get complacent. And, and people forget yeah. Larry Ellison moved out of Silicon Valley and put Oracle's Oracle's headquarters in Houston, Texas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so California, the old guard, Larry yeah. Ellison, and the new guard, Elon Musk, moving. It's crazy because California has all the advantages, right? I mean, it's so easy for California to be number one. It's got the best climate and the best sort of natural conditions, natural beauty in the state. It's wherever it wants to be. Um, You've got uh, the, these incredible industries that are the industries of the future. Technology, we used to have aerospace, even Hollywood and entertainment. I mean, these are... Biotech. Biotech. I mean, these are industries that create huge riches because they're based on intellectual property and they scale incredibly well and they're global in their you know markets, their customer bases. So we have all these advantages, and yet the state is a total mess, and people are leaving. More people are leaving than, than coming in because it's such a mess. Why is it a mess? Because of the politics. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of investing, um, uh, do you care where a company is located anymore when, when Kraft goes to make an investment and write those checks? Not No, not really. Not anymore. I mean, the Do you most go to physical meetings that much anymore, David? Rarely. It's all Zoom. So you're living a digital. So if, it, if entrepreneurs are going to come pitch David Sachs, they're, they're doing it the way you and I are having this conversation. Totally. totally. It's a, that's actually been one really great thing is not having to go to the office. So it's, it's much more efficient for me to be able to just take a meeting from Zoom wherever I am. And now board meetings, you know, board meetings don't require travel anymore. You can just do them by Zoom. So I love this aspect of it. Now, there will occasionally be meetings in person especially you want to do something sort of social or, you know, you meet with a founder that that can definitely happen, but there's no expectation of that. 
that's sort of the exception, not the norm. I personally love it myself. And, and I know guys like you who are on, how many boards are you on? Now, well, like 10 and I'm, I'm trying to reduce the number. Yeah. I think I heard you say recently on one of the podcasts on one of the all ins that you, you time box them now. Am I remembering yeah, this right? I do. I uh, do to a because, year or two. Yeah. Because, you know, you tell a founder, okay, look, I'm, I'm willing to be on your board, but, um, we have to, you know, I'll make it to your commitment. And then we reevaluate. It doesn't mean I have to get off, but, um, I just can't make an open commitment. You know, a board can take 10 years. Right. The other thing I've found, of course, I'm not a venture capitalist, but having sat on a bunch of both private and public boards, I haven't for over a decade, uh, David. And, you know, one of the reasons for that, frankly, is what I, what I realized is I want to make a difference to the entrepreneur. I want to help him design and dominate a category and build an enduring company that's highly valuable, that makes a difference in the world. That's, that's what gets me excited. Well, I don't need to be on your fucking board to do that. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, and I know this is different with a VC, but in some ways for someone like me to not be on the board is good because it takes that sort of element of you're supervising the CEO off the table. And so anyway, I guess my point is as an advisor, and, you know, I rarely get, or I often get invited to a board meeting from time to time. But as an advisor, I can work with the CEO and or her executive team in ways in which to work for her. If visiting a board meeting as an observer from time to time is helpful, fine. If not, fine. And so when you sort of decouple those things and the issue is how do I, given my experience and knowledge and insight, help this company that I'm involved with um, do legendary things, that doesn't require being on the board. Right. Totally. I mean, I, I only want to serve on a board if the founder really, really wants me to. Even then, I don't really want to do it. Um, I mean, I see it as it's eating up my time. So there's a lot of VCs who like will insist on a board seat as like a term of the deal. And the it's like a negative to the founder. They're, they just want the money. And my view on it is, hey, if you just want the money, great. And then, you know, you got my phone number. Call me anytime you need advice. That's perfectly fine with me. Um, sometimes founders want more though. They do want you on the board and they want you given advice. And, um, you know, so that, that's when it'll happen, but just doing board seats as a matter of course is not something that, you know, I'm a huge fan of. And I, I don't think a lot of founders are, you know, sometimes the founders just don't want to tell you because they're afraid of offending you that they don't want a VC on their board. <laughs> And, well, and I'm not it. like, I'm not one of these cocktail party board members like that. I, the reason I'm on your board is so I could tell, I could give a fuck. Right. Right. I know um, exactly. But there are a lot of VCs who want the board seat for their resume or something. And I'm like, look, I'm not building a resume anymore. You know, it's like, I don't want to serve on your board, you know? Um, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> and I don't need to be more famous. Now there's an interesting thing going on in um, venture capital over the last handful of years, which is. And if you think about it differently, I, I want to hear this, but there seems to be with Tiger and many others, a decoupling of the investment and the advice, mm -hmm. the, the sort of mentorship or whatever you might call it. And it's almost akin to, I remember when originally Charles Schwab in the analog world and then E-Trade in the digital world, they showed up and they created a new category of um, uh, investment brokerage by saying, Hey, look, don't go to Morgan Stanley. We've decoupled the transaction and the advice. You don't want any advice. You just want the transaction. We're going to give it to you much better economics. Uh, and it's up to you and sort of your self-serve right. with Schwab and E-Trade. And, and with some of these folks who've almost turned into 
and I don't mean this maybe as pejoratively as it might sound, but term sheet factories Mm -hmm. who don't take board seats. And if you clear some hurdle, um, they just write you a check in 24, 48 hours. And, and they're sort of trying to build a giant mutual fund of a zillion startups and, and away we go. And they say, you don't need advice. You're an entrepreneur. You go figure it out. We're not on your board. And as such, almost devaluing the value of this advice. And so, A, what do you think of that? Uh, Is that the right assessment or what's your assessment of that? And B, kind of how do you think that impacts venture investing going forward? Well, Tiger has been a very big disruption because they're deploying something like 15 billion a year or so. um, Their funds are 15 billion. And it's been very disruptive to late stage uh, capital, basically growth rounds. And what they've done is, like like you said, you send in your your numbers in a like in a certain format, and they'll tell you they'll give you a term sheet within two days. Maybe it's like you know one one call with the founder. It's and it's non dilutive passive capital. I think that strategy works great for growth rounds. We've got a lot of portfolio companies that where we did the early round, and then they went on to raise a growth round from Tiger. So I think it's great for that. Um, but you should understand when you do that that you're not going to get any help. Um, not really. They'll they'll sell you their value add is that they they hire Bain Consulting, <laughs> so you'll get all sorts of like decks from like uh, PowerPoint decks from Bain, uh, and that's their value add. I mean, you and I know that consultants don't know shit about creating a. A, you know, product market fit in a startup. And so that's, that's always where I go to is traditional <laughs> management consulting for, yeah. for helps with early stage startups. Exactly. So, so they don't have a value add, uh, but, and, and that works, I think when you have an investor at the early, in the early rounds or multiple investors who are very hands-on and, and helpful, and you don't feel like you need another one of those, you go to tiger and then top off with cheap growth capital. There are some founders who from day one feel like they don't need any help. But I mean, what we've seen is that most founders in the early stages feel like they could use some help. And so they want a more hands-on firm. And, you know, we are, our firm is built to add value, be very hands-on if the founder wants it at those early stages. They need help with, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, go to market playbooks, like, you know, very common pattern for a founder that we invest in is that they're a product founder. They've got a great idea for a SaaS product. They've built it. They've done some early founder-led sales themselves, but now they need to scale their sales organization. So they know they need to hire a head of sales, but they don't know who to look for, You know what they should be looking for, how to set up their sales team, what should the quotas be, who do I hire? It's like, it's all a complete unknown to them. Well, we've done this a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. We've written blogs about it and so forth. So we can be very hands-on in helping them recruit that person. I will do final stage interviews for my portfolio companies of heads of sales to make sure they choose the right one. Um, you know, and we'll we'll advise them, look, your model is more of an enterprise model. You need this kind of sales leader. And your model is more of a high-velocity SMB type sale, totally different sales model. You need more of this type of leader. So and that's just one example. So, you know, we, we're a very hands-on sort of firm and, you know, we're, it's a different model than Tiger. Tiger is creating an index fund. Like you said, $15 billion is an index fund. Our funds, our current venture fund is 600 million. So it's a much more, as our name implies, it's much more of a craft business, craft. Well, 
<laughs> it's funny that you chose that name because I can remember having this conversation 20 years ago about could you scale a, um, a VC firm like you scaled a McKinsey or a, or a Bain or something like that. And at least in the early stage tech world, the emerging thesis was um, this is a craft business. It's a person to person business. And while there are firms that have endured and build cultures and train people, but the only reason those firms uh, last, you think about, you know, a Sequoia or a Benchmark or an Excel or, or so forth is, is because they, they train the next generation to have those relationships and, and so forth. And so, a craft business, in my mind, is is overweighted on people and personalities as opposed to processes and systems. And it seemed to me, and maybe I'm biased because, you know, it's how I make my living, but uh, that it is a person business and it's not scalable because it's it's a craft business more than it is a scale business. Yeah. I mean, advice is somewhat scalable, but not perfectly scalable. I mean... Tiger is writing, I mean, I heard they were doing two term sheets a day. So, I mean, they have, was that like several hundred portfolio companies in a year and they've only got like a few partners. So there's no way they have time to take calls from portfolio right. companies. They just don't. Um, and that's fine. They've got like a fantastically lucrative model for their partners. Uh, I wish I had thought of it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, look, early stage VC is very different. You know, we have to be available to our portfolio companies to give them advice and help. That's what they expect. That's why they, that's why they come to us for money is, I mean, they really do want the advice and help. Yeah. And there is, you know, who's on your cap table, particularly early does matter. It's a signal as well. That's right. And, you know, the Tiger model, I think, has worked. One of the reasons why it's worked really well to create this index fund is because they already have uh, a prominent Series A firm doing the initial validation, doing the initial diligence on the company. So if they have that, they have sort of, if, you know, Sequoia or Kraft or whoever has done this initial diligence, plus they then have two years of operating history, it's very easy to give you, spit out a term sheet, you know, in a out of a machine in 24 hours without really doing any diligence because the diligence has been done for you. Cause they assume you Sachs craft right. did the due diligence. So if you're, this is the domino, right? Well, right. if Sachs did it and he put in 25 million bucks or whatever it was, then what the fuck? We'll just write a check. Right. You have that validation plus their track record since that round. So, but on the other hand, if tiger is saying they want to move upstream to seed in series A, as they're saying they now want to, I think it's going to be a little bit harder for them to calibrate this right because like, you know, the earlier you get, the more vague things are and the more you actually have to be able to listen to a founder and understand what they're saying, whether it makes sense. And, um, and you have to do a little more diligence on the market opportunity. And so I don't know how they can maintain that like high velocity machine if they really want to move so far on market. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But yeah, I would not want to be I would not want to be sort of generic late stage capital right now because that that market has become fairly um commoditized. Well, and uh, my anticipation is that will also be true in the earlier stages as they come down because the bar for what is valuable advice will probably change. That is to say, if I'm going to if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm taking some kind of a potential discount to get craft in my deal, that has to be a very valuable discount if Tiger's willing to do something economically pretty different. Yeah. I mean, our attitude towards the discount, we don't really go in with that mentality. Our, our view is that the value add breaks a tie. We don't 
we generally feel like that in this business, it's very hard to try to both win the deals you want to be in and uh, get like a discount or a bargain. And we, we kind of feel like we are price takers generally of whatever the prevailing prices are in the market. And we will pay the prevailing prices. Last year, they were high. This year, they're going to be lower. But whatever the prevailing prices are, that's what we'll pay. And we really just choose which companies we want to get involved in. And so when it comes to competing against other firms, we're not looking to really win or lose on valuation, I would say. We want our value add to be the reason people go with us. Uh, now, if Tiger comes in and just blows all the early stage valuations out of the water, and they're at like 2x where we would like to be, then we're going to have to think twice about that. But normally, we don't expect a discount. We would just expect to win with a match based on our value add. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, last year, if I'm not mistaken, was it the best year ever, or certainly one of the best years ever in venture capital startup ecosystem, was it not? Yeah. I mean, well, depending on how you measure it, yeah. Now, well, the question is how sustainable that is. <laughs> well, yeah. And it looks like, uh, you know, we recently had Brian Roberts on and he was indicating this. And of course, you and I re read many of the similar things, which is, A, there is a takedown in valuations. Uh, obviously, there's a reaction to what's happening in the public market. That's a big part of what's driving that. And it seems like there is a slowdown in uh, number of deals and, and sizes of deals. So it seems like on, on the, the big metrics, things are coming down. What's your assessment of how uh, 2022 is going to play out in the startup slash VC world? Well, it's going to be very different than 2021, for sure. Um, there's a huge correction that's been underway really since November. The public market started correcting it in November. And just to, to step back for a second, what happened over the last two years is that you had this uh, enormous amount of liquidity injected into the markets as a result of the Fed and Congress reacting to COVID. You had $10 trillion of money printing and stimulus pushed into the economy after we had all the COVID shutdowns of the economy. And frankly, they overcorrected. They over, you know, it's the typical thing that Washington does is overcorrect. And already it was clear when Biden came in, this was about, uh, let's see, he came into office January of 21. And in April, they, um, they passed the American Rescue Plan or whatever. It was like the last $2 trillion of stimulus. Even by that point, you had uh, you know guys like Stanley Druckenmiller, the famed uh, macroeconomist, saying that don't do this. Demand is already back. The consumer is already back. Retail is fifteen percent above trend, meaning that retail demand by consumers was already not only had caught back up after the the COVID shutdowns brought it way down, but it was fifteen percent above trend. And then they pumped another two trillion, and I think that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And so by the summer, you already saw 5.1% inflation. And by the end of the year, we were up to like 7.8, 7.9. That's where we are now is close to 8% inflation. And so as a result of that, the Fed started making very hawkish noises about interest rate increases. And so this started in November of last year, the Fed started talking tough on inflation. Now, they haven't actually done much of anything. I think they've given us one quarter point raise. They also stopped, I guess, QE. So that was the other thing is they were still doing QE. And the Fed has now told us that they are expecting, they, they said they're going to do 1.75%, seven quarter point rate increases this year. They've done one. 
And so that would imply 50 basis point raises per quarter for the next three quarters. So that's kind of what's now been priced into the market. And But the market's also looking ahead to say, well, gee, even after these rate increases, assuming they happen, is inflation going to be tamed? And there's, you know, and people are on both sides of that. Um, but if it's not tamed and rates have to go up to, I don't know, 5%, the markets could go even lower. So there's tremendous interest rate uncertainty right now. And then you also have all the uncertainty of the war. And then you have the fact that people are now realizing that all of the prices that were paid last year, both in public markets and private markets, were a delusion. They were basically, I mean, that was people drinking the Kool-Aid from all this liquidity that had been pumped into the system. So, for example, in our business and SaaS companies, private market SaaS companies, 100 times ARR became the norm last year. And there were companies that got 250 times ARR. I mean, it was, you know, really extreme. Before COVID, you know, I remember back in, I don't know, you go back to 2018, 2019, uh, you know, 20, 30 times ARR was a much more common multiple. So the multiple expansion was massive. You saw this in the public markets as well. The typical SaaS company used to trade at eight times ARR. It went all the way up to 15 or 16. Now it's all the way back down to eight. So again, you had this huge bubble, this asset bubble. And people say, well, you know, when's it going to bounce back? Well, it did. It bounced back from this artificial high that was created. And this is the level it should be at right now. And it could still go lower if, you know, there's a disaster, if this war spins out of control or, uh, or if inflation is worse than we think, or, or the 10-year T-bill interest rate is higher than people think at the end of this year. So there's still a lot of risk uh, priced in, but the markets now are obviously at a much lower point than they were. I mean, we had companies, so you look at like SaaS companies that were in the public markets that were trading at 20 to $25 billion valuations in November are now trading at six to 7 billion, you know, literally 75% off. So that, that, all that is working its way through the system right now. Do you think we'll see, typically when prices come down like this, we see some consolidation. Uh, do you think we'll see that? Or do you think that the war, the uncertainty of the war will slow down people's appetite? You know, people have been talking by way of example with Salesforce that the reason their their stock is, quote, depressed is that the street is worried they're going to do more slack type deals. Well, this would be a good time for companies like Salesforce I'd say probably later this year to start doing more M&A because valuations are much cheaper. And, you know, a company like Slack that they bought for 30 billion, I think that was valued at around what is like market cap was around 15 to 20. And then they paid a premium to get it to, to like 29, something like that. You have to figure Slack today on a, as a public company would probably be worth, I don't know, 10 billion maybe. I mean, you know, maybe you could say 15. So clearly Salesforce, paid a lot for it. Now, their stock was higher too, but the correction has been greatest among the growth stocks. And um, Salesforce is going to be a much more mature company at this point. So the correction in Salesforce's stock is nowhere near what it's been in these, you know, like recent high flyers, these recent IPOs. So yeah, I mean, Salesforce, I think by the end of the year, it'll be a great time for them to do M&A because they're going to get 75% off what they would have paid a year ago. And that'll be true for virtually everybody, right? So we could yeah, see so in the back half uh, uh, an uptick. Yeah. And it may take more time for founders to get religion, right? So, you know, one of the reasons why there's not a lot of deals happening right now is because 
in, in VC land is because prices are kind of sticky. I mean, all the founders remember the glory days just six months ago of 100 times ARR, and they're still anchored on that. And they don't believe that like there's been this giant repricing and that things could really be at 20 times ARR. And they know they only need one VC to still be drinking the Kool-Aid to pay 100. So, you know, they're going to hold out to see if they can get that. And a lot of companies, and we're advising our companies, like, look, this isn't really a great time to be fundraising if you don't have to. So they're going to wait longer and they're going to lengthen their runway. They're going to try and burn less money. So they don't have to raise in a bad market, hoping it bounces back. So there's going to be resistance uh, to these changes in um, price levels. But by the end of the year, things will reach um, a new normal because companies just have to raise. And, um, you know, and then I think what will happen is, assuming LPs are looking at all of this, there'll be less deployment by LPs into new VC funds and, There'll start to be a contraction of VC money entering the market. Maybe, you know, might be a very good time to be an LP in a VC fund. <laughs> I think I think 2022 will be a much better vintage than 2021. I mean, this is the irony: is that as a VC, you want to be investing when price levels are low and exiting when price levels are high. And so, when the world looks like it's in a disaster, that's the best possible time to be investing. In fact, we had um, you could call, almost call it like a micro vintage in the. Right after COVID started, you remember like the NASDAQ went down like 30, 40%. Everyone was worried the world was going to end. There was a three or four month period where everyone in Silicon Valley stopped investing because they were just like frozen up. And we at Kraft decided to keep investing through it. And we did three or four deals during that three or four month period that I think would be some of our best deals. And yeah, it was like a 50% off sale. In fact, we should have done more deals if we could. And then what happened is the Fed started pumping like crazy. and Valuate, and then that money started flowing through, and the market went back up. And then all the VCs who had missed out on all the deals were like, "Wait a second, why do we just stop investing for the last four months? Now we have to make up for lost time." And the whole thing just got very bubbly. <laughs> People, uh, human beings are pack animals. <laughs> now, some VCs are telling, uh, are, are painting a, a pretty dark picture for their um, their CEOs and their companies, and saying, "Hey, listen, battle stations." Take your burn rate way down. Assume that your last round is your final round. Uh, you know, some of them are ringing that recession bell pretty hard. Um, what kind of advice are you giving to your CEOs and founders? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good point. I think that, I mean, definitely we're telling them, lengthen your runway, make your cash last, understand that the conditions, if you raised last year, that those were peak conditions and never be that easy or favorable again. Also understand that you may need to grow into your valuation. For example, if the new valuation level that lands and then that sort of persists is 20 times ARR, and, and we don't know that it is yet, by the way, it could end up being 30 or 40, who knows? Uh, but let's say it is 20 and you raise it 100 times ARR, you have to grow 5X just to get this, a flat round valuation, right? So, you know, most companies can't grow 5X in one year. They need to, it takes them two years to do that. So if you're planning on raising, in 12 to 18 months, like the go-go days, you're not going to have enough time to grow into your current valuation, never mind get an up round. So you need to make that money last until you can at least grow into your current valuation and then hopefully a little bit on top of that so you can get an up round. And here's the problem is VCs don't like to fund down rounds. So you know you may take a perfectly healthy company that's still growing, I don't know, two, two and a half X year over year, 
but they raised at, you know, 250 times ARR a year ago or two years ago, and they just haven't grown into that valuation. I mean, what they should do is just raise at the market clearing price and move on. But VCs don't like those deals because um, they know about the psychology of the company. Everyone in the, all the employees feel down and they're worried that the company will sort of fall apart. And no VC likes to be the bearer of bad news who tries to convince the founder that actually your valuation was never realistic, you know? And so a lot of times like the rounds just don't happen because no one wants to to lead the down round or, you know, you'll end up with a round with a lot of structure in it and which is always very bad, you know? So I would just tell founders like, look, you know, think about public companies. There's not a public company stock that doesn't go up or down. This whole idea that your stock can only go up. It's only one direction. It, it's not like that. I mean, and you have to, now, if you want to avoid that fate of, of that risk, you have to make sure that this money lasts long enough for you to hit the new performance met benchmarks that the market expects. And if not, you're going to have to do that down round. And uh, I mean, we've all been through it. Uh, standing up as an executive in front of your company and explaining why you just raised all this money at a haircut from the last value and what that means to everybody's stock. And, you know, because, of course, employees, if they don't if they don't actually take a loan and, and spend the money anyway, mentally, they're spending the money and their spouses right. and families are spending the money. And now when you explain to them what's happened and what Solution looks like, et cetera, et cetera. That's not a fun all hands meeting, is it? No, I mean, this is the problem is that no VC. I mean, look, if you're the VC who leads that down round, you're perceived as the bad guy. Why are you giving, you know, why are you cheating us on? But it's like most VCs are like, fine, I don't want to deal with it. I'll go find a company that didn't screw up its cap table, you know? So, I and mean, this is the, the, the problem. And I, I think, I think the mistake here is founders should not get too wrapped up in valuations. You know, like my attitude towards valuations as a VC at Kraft is look, the market decides I'm a price taker at the old, at the end of the day. We're not, you know, it's wonderful if we can get a deal, but we just choose the companies we want to be in. What I would tell founders is go out and run the best process you can when you need to raise money because you need to raise money. Talk to enough firms that you have a clear idea. You're probably going to need to talk to more firms in a down market because you're going to get fewer term sheets, but just let the valuation come out where it comes out. Remember, you know, these rounds are not the same. As, they're not a liquidity event and they're not the same as an exit. And they're, they're just a step along the way towards you building what you're trying to build, you know, and people, you know, some of the people in my, some of the more junior people in my firm are saying like, David, don't, don't, you know, don't rain on everyone's parade. All the stuff you're saying out there, founders don't like it. They think you're trying to rip them off and try and get a good deal. I'm really not. I mean, I promise you that we will pay whatever the prevailing prices are, good, bad, or neutral. I'm just giving you the straight scoop here, you know. Um, but founders will be a lot better off if they just try, try to run the best process they can. When talk to a bunch of different parties, you know, run it, run the process when you need to, and you, the evaluations will come out where they come out. It's not something you can control. Yes. Now, David, clearly uh, I could talk to you for uh, a long, long time about a long list of topics, but I also want to be respectful of your time, you being a uh, captain of industry and one of the besties. <laughs> and so is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap, David? Um, no, it's, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Maybe too much ground. <laughs> 
Well, I, I appreciate it as always. And uh, hopefully have you back a, a little bit more regularly than we have yeah. done this lately. Absolutely. Happy to do it anytime, Chris. Thank you, brother. Yeah. It's all right. Fun to see you again. Well, there he is, the legendary David Sachs, and you can find him on the internet at craftventures.com. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as uh, we did around here, why not share it with somebody you care about right now? Uh, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple or any of the major podcast players, you can press a button right now on your smartphone and share it with people that uh, you think will uh, will love this conversation. And we always appreciate your shares on social media. Thank you so much. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out. And I'd like to ask you a seminal question that most CEOs have a hard time answering. Are you going to meet, beat, or miss your revenue number? That's where my friends at Clary come in. Clary is the first platform that empowers you to run revenue like an enterprise process. Now, marketing, sales, customer success, and finance teams can work together on revenue. Clary's customers report a 12.6% increase in sales win rates. Visit Clary, that's C-L-A-R-I.com today. That's Clary.com today and learn how to optimize your revenue. Our friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. And our friends at interviewvalet.com are the folks you call when you want to get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. Check out interviewvalet.com. And uh, also your spouse texted, she she said, or he said, or they said. (laughs) It's okay. Go ahead and pick up a copy of Category Design Toolkit, Beyond Marketing, 15 Frameworks for Creating and Dominating Your Niche Category Design Toolkit on Amazon.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Warning, the creators of this podcast uh, were certainly consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution around here. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus, the brothers, on our web development, and Cedric Barros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind, and we record on squadcast.fm. If you want a professional podcast on the internet, check out squadcast.fm. Johnny Cash was right. Listen to the Ramones. Please teach real dialogue. And the left-hand lane is for people going fast. Why is this hard to understand? Prius drivers, Tesla drivers, and any other drivers. Get out of the left-hand lane. Some of us are going somewhere. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Uh, Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.